Second Samuel chapter eight. Second Samuel chapter eight. I'll say a word of recognition. I recognize that Ying and Hidao are here. They got married a couple months ago. Ying has been had been a church member for almost a year. Then married Edow, and he took her off to Kansas, and we thought we weren't going to see her again. But we're happy to see you today. Melissa and I are also happy to have Fred, my father-in-law, with us this morning. He's up for a week or so from Georgia. I'm glad to have Fred. And uh, we took him yesterday to the Oshkosh Air Adventure. And that was a first for all of us. That's where I got the sunburn. So there's a lot to take in there. Everything from how to build a plane to how to fly a plane and everything in between. And the highlight, of course, is watching these planes in flight. We saw lots of old, what they call warbirds, the old planes from the past. And then we got treated right before we left. Titus, he went with us too. Philip thought he would enjoy it, and he did, but he enjoyed it for about 10 minutes. And Philip said, Granddad, is it over? I'm ready to go. Can we go to the playground? Can we watch this on TV? I said, no, we're going to watch it right here. But we, we, we did. We stayed, and then there at the end were the new planes right before we left. And it's kind of amazing in a stark contrast, both from the speed standpoint as well as from the noise but it was cool to experience. But one of the things I really appreciate about the air show is its celebration of the old as well as the new. You see the new in a different perspective when you see the old, and I think you see or think of the old in a different way when you see the new. How much progress has been made. And you know, we have to do the same as we enter the world of the Scripture and seek to understand how God is working. There's so much that he is telling us about the future by what he has already done in the past. And indeed, it is the case when we look at what he has done in and through the reign of David. And we'll see that this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 8. Would you please stand for the reading of the word of God? After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab. And he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, the king of Jobah, Zobah. Excuse me. And he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, King of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. 
Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus. And the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and from Berothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Sariah was secretary. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were priests. Father, we give thanks to you that your word is like a hammer that breaks the rock. It's like bread that feeds our soul. It can be like five smooth stones sent against the forehead of our wickedest sins. It is our help, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. I pray even as we've read today this catalog of victories, of tribute, and personnel in the administration of David. That what may seem unexciting would be used by you with such a strong impression because we are hearing God speak that we will absorb it as such. And that our question would be this morning, Lord, what life-changing truths are here for me? What is here to make a difference in the way I think, the way I live, the way I worship? Lord, give it to us, we pray. Give it to us in power and give us the glory of Jesus that we will be changed into his likeness one degree at a time. 
because it's in his name that we boldly come and make this prayer to you. Amen. You may be seated. So, it's been important to me as we have studied our way through the life of David to accomplish an important task. I want you to see the relevance of what happened in the life of David to our own lives and our own times. I have consistently sought to stress how David points us to Jesus. It's not just because I want you to see Jesus everywhere. It is because Jesus is everywhere in the Scripture. I want you to see him where he is, and he is here. And as we have come to consider the reign of David, we are considering what is the kingdom of God. This is God's king over God's people. It is the kingdom of God. David is God's chosen king, the man after God's own heart. He is who he is by the grace and by the working of God for the glory of God. And when Jesus comes to sit on his glorious throne, it will be the throne of his father David. So in order to demonstrate this point, I direct your attention to the first chapter of the book of Luke in the 32nd verse. We listen in to the announcement which came from the lips of the angel Gabriel to the heart and ears of Mary. Speaking of the son that she would conceive and bear, Gabriel explained that the Lord God would give to this son the throne of his father, David. Now, twice in this text that we have just read, we came across the declaration that the success that David experienced as he went forth in battle took place because, quote, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. We saw it in verse 6 and in verse 14. So David's victory is the Lord's victory because the Lord is the one who is winning the victory and giving it to David. And David's throne is the Lord's throne over the Lord's people. So what we are seeing in this chapter is not merely a description of the successful aspects of David's reign, but also aspects of the way it is whenever God's king is sitting on God's throne in God's kingdom. Now, I would be careful to say, I'm not saying that David was perfect. We know we're going to get in pages as we turn the pages from chapter to chapter. We're going to see three terrible things about it. But we're not saying David's perfect. We're saying David is emblematic of the kingdom of God because his reign is, is, is the reign of God on the earth through David. And so what we do see as far as great aspects of his reign are those things that epitomize the reign of God. And therefore, they're the things that we're going to anticipate seeing in the reign of Jesus. Because the throne upon which he sits will be the throne of David. So here's the reality of life in the kingdom of God. Then and now. And future. Now the narrator in these verses this morning highlights three key features of God's kingdom. Enemies. Wealth and justice. 
enemies are defeated. Wealth is accumulated and dedicated, and justice is administrative. So let's look at each of these three as marks that we see characteristic of God's reign through David then, characteristic of Christ's reign now, and characteristic of Christ's full and completed rule still to come. It'll have something to do with enemies. It'll have something to do with wealth, and it will have something to do with justice. So the first feature of God's kingdom under God's king that I want you to see with me this morning is that the enemies are defeated. Enemies defeated, verses 1 through 6, and also verses 13 to 14. The word here that I want you to even catch from the beginning, enemies defeated, and the ESV uses this word, defeated. Uh, I'm afraid they probably chose a milder form of the word than actually is insinuated by the Hebrew language. I can use the word defeat in varying settings. For example, I can conceivably defeat others in a game of apples to apples. Now, those of you who have played apples to apples with me know that's just a dream. That if I get one out of 25, if you've ever played apples to apples, you know. If you don't know, just, just, just okay, give me the benefit of the doubt. Here, um, I'm not very good at apples to apples. That's it. I don't, that's why I don't like it. You find I don't like things I'm not good at, so that's just the truth. So, but if I happen to have my dream come true and I win at apples to apples, I'll defeat all the other players. But that's kind of mild sort of defeat. On the other hand, we could use the word defeat in a different context, a vastly different sense of intensity for example, say when the Allies defeated the Germans and the Japanese in World War II. Atomic bombs falling upon Japan, that was a defeat. But that wasn't just a defeat. That wasn't like a, a winning shot as the timer is running out. That was a decimating blow that utterly obliterated the enemy. And the word that is used here in 2 Samuel 8, carries a strong sense of defeat, not just a mild last-minute victory, but a, an enemy-decimating defeat. The terms that would be perhaps even better uh, used here would be these, to strike down or to smite. It's really the image that we get from Revelation 19 when Jesus comes with a rod of iron to defeat his enemies. He's not just going to knock them down. He is going to deal them a decimating blow. And here's what's true of David. These enemies are brought down by David. They are no longer a threat. And that describes the enemies of David over the surrounding, this, the victories of David over the surrounding enemies. Here's a list of enemies to the nation of Israel, which David, as king, struck down. The Philistines. The Philistines were positioned to the west of the land. Then there were the Moabites. The Moabites were positioned to the east of the land. Then there was 
that guy that strange, with a strange name that we read through the text several times, Adadezer, and along with the Syrians, they were struck down by David, and they were to the north. Finally, we see down in verses 13 to 14 the mention of the Edomites who were positioned to the south. So you see from the east to the west and from the north to the south, the enemies of Israel that surrounded them in every direction were struck down by David. David smote them with severity, and we have descriptions of that severity. And sometimes people read about that severity and say, this is why I can't believe the Bible. Well, those people might also shudder when the Bible gives descriptions of the place of eternal torment. I'm not saying that what David did was nice, but it was brutal, and it does reflect the fact that judgment is brutal. I'm not saying that David did everything right, but I would say that as you look at the brutality, consider this. When Jesus comes to deal out retribution, he's not going to do it with a feather duster. But as the Bible says, with a rod of iron. And, play, and, and hell is not a place where the temperature is 78 instead of 72. It's where the fire burns without being quenched. Many were killed by David, and the rest became his servants. But the line that is repeated is this. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. East, west, north, south. No more enemies to threaten the people of God. With one exception, but this was not this was a person who became not an enemy, but a friend. This is what some people call the toy story of the Bible. The list of people that were struck down did not include this guy named Toy. He saw the defeat that David brought upon the whole army of Hadadezer, king of Zobah, and the Syrians and he did not want to be defeated in like manner. So what did he do? He, he sent his son to greet David with gold and silver and bronze and to say, how are you doing? How is your health? He was coming to show concern and friendship to David so as not to be regarded as his enemy. Rather than being struck down by David, he chose to be subject to David. Here were all of these gifts by which he subjected himself. That's the choice that everyone faces with respect to David's greater son, Jesus. You either join with him in subjection to his rule or he will eventually come against you to strike you down. One way or another, from the east to the west, the north to the south of the earth, Jesus will reign. And the nations will be a footstool for his feet. So see the wisdom of toy. And if you haven't come to, to, to bow the knee to Jesus as your Lord, then would be in your best interest to do so today. He's a savior and he was a protector of those who will bow down to him and trust in his work upon the cross. In the kindness of God, he offers peace to those who will turn from enmity with him and yield themselves as followers to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, from a practical standpoint, this section of the text highlights something for us that we need to reckon with as Christians, as people that live in our time. What we see highlighted in this text is the fact that facing enemies and experiencing conflict are a fact of life in this sin-cursed world. It was true for God's king, David. God made him king, and it wasn't an effortless rule. It was a rule involving conquests, involving fight and battle in order to achieve the peace that came as a result. He was opposed on every side, east, west, north, and south. The nations were not lining up to yield allegiance to David. There was one, but that one was the exception to all the rest. Being a man after God's own heart did not exempt David from the fight. It brought him right into the heart of the battle. And it's going to be true for you and me, too. If you follow Jesus, do not think that your life will be easy. Do not think you will be not challenged. That you Do not expect that things should, should just be, uh, what? Okay, happy-go-lucky, whatever. That it would be just easy. But, you know, some people seem to think this, and sometimes that's the gospel presentation that's given, and it's so wrong. If you follow Jesus, everything will be good in your life. And it's as though they're trying to create an appeal. If you want things to go good in your life, then surely you'll come follow Jesus because you want everything to be that way. But it's not. Not now. David, God's king, had to go on conquests to come to this place of victory and security for his people, for the people of God. And this is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God suffers enemies. And the kingdom of God has to be a kingdom of conquest. It will be a, a kingdom that faces conflict in order to gain the conquest. Well, let's just think about Jesus himself, the very Son of God, the one who spoke this creation into its existence, comes to his creation. And yet... He came to his own, and they received him not. He was hated in his hometown. They wanted to throw him off the cliff. He was opposed throughout Galilee. And, of course, he was nailed to the cross in Jerusalem. People lined up to be healed by Jesus and fed by Jesus. But when the truth of the kingdom was proclaimed, what did those crowds do? John 6. They left. There were a precious few who subjected themselves to Christ. And he warned them they'd be treated just like he was. They would be mistreated too. But though Jesus experienced conflict, the Lord gave victory wherever he went. Just think about this. He outsmarted his opponent. They thought they were smarter, and so they'd put hard questions, and he would answer them and leave them speechless. He put their ignorance of the scriptures on full display. The very scriptures that they claimed to know inside and out, up one side and down. And he would say, haven't you read? And point out the truth to them. He demonstrated true righteousness in contrast to all of the outward show that abounded. These are victories. 
And then even though Jesus died on the cross, he was not defeated by it. He rose from the dead. He was a tool for his victory, victorious over the grave. So enemies and conflict are a fact of life even today for believers. Now in the present circumstances in which we follow Christ today, like Jesus, we too face the hostilities of the world. They don't want what we have to offer. As Paul said to Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There is a conflict involving truth also. And those who despise God's truth are relentless in their hostility. And some of those who do meet in buildings with steeples on the top. But as Paul said to the Corinthians, we are involved in warfare. If it's not fleshly in nature, it's still warfare. And the weapons of our warfare have divine power to destroy strongholds, arguments, and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. There's conflict. Conflict in regards to truth especially. And then there's another enemy that we face, and this is the devil who opposes the followers of Christ at every turn. He is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and he's already got the world. So if you are belong to Christ, he is coming after you. But even when it comes to him, we have the victory through Christ. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but through Christ we can resist him, firm in the faith, and after suffering for a little while, but there will be suffering, but after suffering for a little while, says Peter, the God of all grace will himself confirm, strengthen, and establish his people. So there's the world, there's the devil, and there's also the flesh. An enemy, the enemy within, it's a relentless enemy to our sanctification. You can't grow in holiness, by the way, effortlessly. You can't grow in holiness without any effort. Now, there's one sense in which this is a battle won. And we have, to, we have the resources to fight it, but we have to fight it. The enemy is going to come. It's a battle not because we do not have the strength because in Christ we are victors. But victory doesn't happen apart from the battle. You've got to face the enemy. Temptations are common to man, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, 10. 10, 13. But God is faithful, who does not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability, but with each temptation provides a way of escape that we may be able to endure it. Now, some people expect that following Christ means no conflict, no challenge, no hardship. But no, it means the battle has just begun. It does mean that the things that threaten you, that will take you down, are no longer your enemy or no longer able to defeat you. But it doesn't mean that you're going to live and not have those things just give up and run away. But we can face the battles with confidence. We can face them with an eye to the future when one day there will be no more conflict. Amen. Because through Christ our King, we are more than conquerors. And that hope, we need to absorb that hope and live in the light of that hope and live in the light of the power of Christ and live in the light of who we are in Him. David's victories then point us 
then to where we are now, but they also point us ahead to the ultimate, complete, and final victory of Jesus. And I was really remarking this week as I read how that Paul expressed this in 1 Corinthians 15, thinking of Christ at his future coming. He says, we'll deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying, which goes back to smiting, to defeating, not as in a game of apples to apples, but in as defeating, as bringing death to his enemies. Destroying, he will destroy death. He will destroy every rule and every authority and every power, north, south, east, and west. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. As Revelation 19 depicts, the King of kings and Lord of lords comes with a sharp sword from his mouth with, with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. No army could withstand David, and no forces will be able to withstand the Lord Jesus when he returns to fulfill the purposes of God, to plant his people in the new heavens and the new earth. And this is the proclamation of the angels in Revelation eleven fifteen that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. But before the conquest comes the conflict, Jesus does come with a sword. He does come with a rod, and he will execute battle, and he will win. And those of us who belong to him share in that ultimate victory, just as surely as we share in the present victory over the power and the penalty of sin. And one day we share in the fact of no longer will sin even be present. All enemies from east, west, north, and south defeated, struck down. So do not be discouraged. Do not think that being in a battle is a bad thing. It is a necessary thing. Conquest comes through conflict. Be encouraged then that a day is coming when there will no longer be any conflict at all. For all of Christ's enemies will be struck down. But until then, keep fighting and don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when you feel tired, weak. Don't be surprised when it seems like the enemy is raising up its head again. Rest in him and fight in the power of Christ with the assurance and hope of victory in Christ. So, first mark, first feature of, of, of God's kingdom when God's king is reigning, enemies are defeated. Secondly, this morning I want you to see wealth dedicated, verses 7 through 12, and we actually see mention sprinkled throughout the defeat of wealth, tribute that comes to David. But along with the victories over enemies and the impressions made on those who did not want to be defeated by David, there came this tribute and the spoils of war. David defeated his defeat of Hadadezer, king of Zobah, yielded shields of gold and very much bronze. And Toy then sent the articles of silver, gold, and bronze in appreciation to David for defeating a common enemy. Verse 11 is key. It tells us that what David received from toy, he dedicated to the Lord. 
together with the silver and gold he dedicated from all the nations that he subdued. David was getting rich. Israel was becoming wealthy. And what did David do with it? all that wealth? It belongs to the Lord. It is the Lord's. All this wealth, and he dedicated it to the Lord. As a forerunner and one who foreshadows Christ, David received the wealth of the nations around him. Likewise, certain texts indicate to us that the wealth of the nations will come to the Lord ultimately. Isaiah 60 speaks of the future glory of Israel testifying this. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. They shall bring gold and frankincense. See how this image is even looking ahead to the arrival of the kingmakers to Jesus at the manger and bring gold and frankincense and myrrh to the king. Sort of a down payment, a first glimpse of the wealth of the nations that will belong to Jesus when he sits on the throne in the new heavens and the new earth. In Haggai 2, the Lord speaks of the coming glory of the temple and he says, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. These verses become even more striking when we stop to realize that the gold and the silver and the bronze which David obtained and which he dedicated to the Lord, you know what he did with them? He passed them down to Solomon and you know what Solomon did with them? He built the temple with them. So you see, the Lord himself draws upon the shadows in David's reign to point ahead to the future. Revelation 21 affirms that in the new earth, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. They will bring it in, to, they will bring it the glory and the honor of the nations they will bring in. Revelation 21. As a man of God then, and as a shadow of Christ, David teaches us an important lesson about wealth, about the riches of this world. It all belongs to God. All of it. And what do you do when you get an abundance of it? Amen. You recognize that it's His. The nations in the world, they hold tightly to their wealth. They love the creation and they hold fast to the creation while rejecting the one who made it. They will not relinquish the precious treasures of this world to worship the Lord, but he will pry their hands off ultimately, off all their stuff as he strikes them down. And what belongs to him will come to him. So in a related practical consideration, remember this. David went forth in battle. And why did he win? He won because the Lord gave him victory wherever he went. And what did he get wherever he went? Gold and bronze and silver. And so what did he do? Oh, that's mine. The Lord gave me victory where I have gone. These, these tributes of war belong to the one who got the victory. It's not David. It's God. 
was not his. He did not earn it. It belonged to the Lord. It's the same way with our wealth. You go to work. You work hard. I want you to know something. It is the Lord who gives you the strength to go and earn wherever you go. Just as surely as the Lord gave victory to David, the Lord gives you your strength. The Lord gives you your ability. The Lord gives you your time. The Lord gives you your health to honor him with your work. And what you get for working is not yours. It's not mine. It's his. It should be dedicated to him and handled as such. The question for us is never, what am I going to do with my money? But how am I going to manage God's money that he has entrusted to my care? And we should be glad to relinquish hold on it for the purposes of the Lord. We should be gracious and generous givers to the cause of Christ in the world. It's not a physical temple now, but a temple is being built. It's ongoingly being built by people who are the temple of the Lord. And we should use our gold, silver, and towards the building of the temple, the worldwide temple of God, which is his people. Gladly should we have our work and our efforts funneled into the expansion of the expression of God's glory and where he dwells among his people in the world, expressing the greatness of a God who is merciful, and kind, and saving, and forgiving, and reigns gloriously over the world he created and has given the, the privilege of living on it to human beings. Now he has saved them. For the Lord himself has entrusted to us the resources of this world to use for his glory. So, what are you going to do with God's money? What are you doing with the talents and the days he has given you? Are you a faithful and generous giver? Have you dedicated to the Lord what belongs not to you, but to him? So, we have these features of the kingdom. When God's king is reigning, we have enemies defeated, and we have wealth dedicated. Thirdly, we see this morning that justice is administrated. Look at verses 15 to 18. When we arrive at these verses, we, we move from the external accomplishments of David all around against the enemies, subduing the enemies and receiving the wealth. Now we have a focus upon what's going on within the boundaries of the nation itself. Justice is administrated among God's people through God's king. This was the internal accomplishment of the reign of David. Set forth in verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to his people. What then follows is a list of the personnel 
that under the Lord were used to help make David's administration successful. He didn't act alone. He was supreme, but under him there were those who administrated what he wanted to accomplish within the land. And so the focus is on David's reign. And three features stand out of this depiction of justice administrated. Okay? So first of all, there's the narrator emphasizes the scope of David's reign. How big was his reign? How full? How complete was his reign? Well, the narrator says David reigned over all Israel. So the scope is full, complete, lacking nothing. It includes the whole. Now, think about this. Remember when David was first anointed king? Who did it? Did all the tribes come together? Very first, what happened? It was the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Judah alone that came and anointed David king. Seven years went by after, David, after Judah proclaimed David king before the remaining 11 tribes then joined with Judah. And there was a schism for some time. So the use of the word all stresses that at this point, his reign is complete. It's over all the tribes and all the tribes are now unified under David. David is gladly owned by each one as its own king. Israel is unified under the reign of David. The people of God have come together. They are one. They have been brought together by their king. This unity is a wonderful thing. Psalm 133 extols the blessing when God's people are united. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like soothing oil. It's like the morning dew on the mountain. Unity is a mark of the kingdom, then, when, it's at, when, when the reign of God and the rule of God is at its strongest level, there is unity among God's people. Just think of the earliest days of the early church. The moving of the Spirit was strong, and the people of the Lord were unified. They were all together and had all things in common, and they were selling their stuff and sharing with each other whenever somebody had a need. They were in, such, they were in each other's homes and vibrantly sharing life together. There was generosity among each other. They were praising God, and God was saving people left and right and adding them to this group. And in those days, God made it clear that he had brought down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles and made the two into one through Jesus Christ and his cross. Through him, we both have access in one spirit to God the Father. In Christ, we are reconciled to God as a single structure, a holy temple in the Lord. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. We are diverse, yes. Walking around the grounds of the air venture yesterday, I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And I just marveled one time thinking how different every one of these is. It's all different, different colors, different shapes, different sizes. And they're all made by God. And there's diverse, there is diversity. We don't have to fabricate diversity. I'm looking at diversity. And uh, it's a good thing because in the, in the family and in the body, we're not all alike because God wants to put us together in such a way that we can function well as a unit. So we shouldn't be all alike. We mustn't have the same gifts, the same strengths. 
We have gifts that complement, and God uses this to, function, to put us together as a structure that functions well as one. And that unity, we should recognize it and strive for it. There are things that threaten our unity. Strife, envy, jealousy, these have no place among those who are redeemed by God's greater Son, Jesus. Harmony and love and forgiveness, care, the same care for one as for another. And then can you imagine what it will be like in terms of unity when Christ takes us home? No bickering over who's first. No disappointment that some might be overlooked. No separate causes. Nobody saying, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. Peter from, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Distinct in every sort of way, but joined in heart and song and voice and objective to serve the King of Kings. With that view, let us by the Spirit pursue unity with each other. Forgive. Rejoice in who you are by God's grace. Love and serve one another. That's the scope of David's reign. David reigned over all. Bringing them together. Next, the narrator says that about this character of David's reign and justice. Verse 15, he says that he administered justice and equity to all his people. So it wasn't just reigning over all, he administered justice to all. So there was no prejudice. There was no unequal uh, distribution of, of, of what was appropriate. In our day, though, I would just say equity. And they use the word equity in the ESV here. In our day, equity has become understood as something where there's equal outcomes. No matter what the income, there's an equal outcome. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not justice. Equal outcome is not justice because there's not equal income. In other words, input, output. In some ways, you could say there's equal, there is equality, equity. All sinners get Jesus' righteousness. And we're all justified, which means in Christ they were forgiven all sins. But there is elements of differentiation. Think about how the Bible talks about 30, 60, and 100 fold. Some give and some get that way. There's difference. It's not equity. That's okay. It's all grace and it's all mercy. In the kingdom of God, there are rewards and they differ from person to person. They correspond to our level of faithfulness with what God has entrusted to us. That's part of righteousness and justice. When there is righteousness and justice, there is no discrimination or prejudice based upon the tribe from which you come or the wealth or the stature which you possess. Evil is evil no matter who commits it, and righteousness is right. In the kingdom of God, righteousness is the rule. Righteousness and truth are the foundation of the throne. The strong are not allowed to oppress the weak, nor are the weak given advantage over the strong. Our nation is touted as having... Liberty and justice for all. It's an ideal pursuit, but it's only true in the kingdom of God. It falls short of reality in America. It certainly falls short for the unborn whose lives are stolen by abortion. Every day, it seems, liberty and justice in the United States are under increasing attack. It shouldn't be surprising, though. We are not a kingdom whose God is the Lord. That will only be the case in the, the kingdom whose God is the Lord. And that's not going to have like a, a name that we know of a country in our world. 
It is the kingdom of God. That's the one nation where the Lord is the king. The king is the Lord. But there, there will be liberty. Liberty to obey. Liberty to love. Liberty to glorify and justice. Truth and righteousness are the foundation of the throne of our king. David's greater son, Jesus, alone will reign in perfect righteousness and justice. That day is still future. But think about it. When you see what's going on in our world today and you get tormented in your soul because injustice flourishes and in our government, lying pervades and politicians talk a talk and they try to do something that almost always fails to address the real problems in the world. But that day that is future is an eternal day. Justice and righteousness for all, forever. Finally, the narrator tells us about the executors of David's reign. He mentions Joab being over the army, Jehoshaphat the recorder, Zadok and Ahimelech the priest, Saraiah the secretary, Benaiah's role with the Cherethites and the Pelethites seems to have been a role of a bodyguard. Then it says that David's sons themselves had some priestly role, though we should not understand that as being serving in the temple. It was the Levites who did that, so there was some priestly role they had in a, any way. But these names and their roles in David's administration stress the fact that a king surrounds himself with others who are under shepherds to carry out his will. These are roles of honor and responsibility. And really, what do we see when Jesus came? He surrounded himself as well with a group of those who were on the inside, a group of insiders. The disciples were referred to later as Jesus' apostles, and they were entrusted with the responsibility to administrate the principles of the kingdom and teach the truths of the kingdom of heaven. And before ascending to heaven, then Jesus authorized these apostles along with other followers. All authority in heaven and earth has been given me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The church is the current appointee in the administration of King Jesus on the earth to exercise his reign on the earth through preaching and teaching, through evangelizing and discipling, through encouraging, admonishing, exhorting, and through exemplifying his righteousness to the world. When the, church, when the world looks at the church, what they should see is what a glimpse of what it will be in eternity. It's what they should see, and we should strive for that. Well, looking ahead to the new heavens and the new earth, we know that even then we will be bearers of responsibility within the eternal kingdom. Think of the parable of the talent. To illustrate this, the master, what did he do? He's going on a trip. He, he, he entrusts property according to the ability of three servants. And he goes away. And he comes back at a later time to settle accounts with them. And those who were faithful were approved by the master. And their reward was being entrusted with even greater responsibility. When you think of the reward here, the reward for faithfulness here is more responsibility there. An administration in the, in the new heavens, in the new earth, where Jesus sits as king and rules and involves 
his faithful servants as stewards, even there. We will be executors of the will of God for the new heavens and the new earth. I don't know all that that involves, but I know this. God's people will never get bored, and we will be valued as friends of the king and trusted with the task to carry out his will for his new creation. And again, what is that? That's our hope. That's what we're looking forward to, and it would buoy our uh, our joy as we live in the midst of a world where we face enemies. Now, when we look back at 2 Samuel 8, this chapter may not feel like a drama on par, say, with David's encounter with Goliath. However, when we recognize that what we see here actually foreshadows Jesus Christ, it transforms our estimation of its importance. And if we think about the new and the old and the progress, ah, we see like principles that are looking forward to the new and not improved and continually progressing until we get to the kingdom of Christ. See, normally, you know, I don't know about you, but when I get something new, it doesn't bother me too much to throw out the old that I'm replacing it with. But I remember my brother, still recall him, at four years old or so, sitting in the back of our old Ford Galaxy 500 baby blue color and the black vinyl top. And I... He was crying, and my mom was sitting with him saying, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. He didn't want to leave that old car. He loved that old car, but I was all excited about changing a four-door sedan for an almost new station wagon. The older we get, the easier it is, I think, to let go of the old and embrace the new. Old cars wind up in junkyards and are often never thought of again, but you know, as technology and advancement goes... We would never have today's improvements without yesterday's accomplishments. So when we look back, don't devalue it. Shouldn't just forget the old. At the Oshkosh Air Show yesterday, there was an entire field of all these old vintage aircraft and these old warbirds. And then there were there was the F.A. 18 that flew through the air. And we were putting our fingers on our ears. Seeing the old helps one appreciate the marvel of the new. Seeing the marvel of the new helps you see the significance of what was done then. And when we look back at David's reign, we could choose to dismiss it as irrelevant now because we're... In the new phase of the kingdom, it's progress. But that would be a mistake. We can appreciate what God was doing through him then and have a deepened insight into what he is doing now and future in Jesus Christ. The, king, the highlights of God's kingdom then show us that God's purposes have never changed, although his purpose includes progress. So let us behold the wonder of the Lord in the past and let us embrace with wonder what will be wonder when his purpose is fulfilled in the future. And meanwhile, let us employ ourselves in the task of calling men and women and boys and girls to come away from the world and be part of the kingdom which is here 
and coming soon in its fullness. Let's pray. Our Father, Lord, we thank you as we have sought to study and learn from this text today that there has been so much of such great value for us to learn from, um, to, to be taught by, to be encouraged by. Lord, we just pray that your people today will leave this place of high hopes and zeal with encouragement and with excitement about what's to come based on what we see when we look back at what was. We thank you that you chose David, that he was a man after your heart by your grace, that you, despite of all his problems and all his sins, did not let up, did not give up, did not back up from your promise to make his throne an eternal throne. And today we thank you that sitting on that throne is Jesus and he is waiting for the, in, for the nations of the world to come, the, the footstool of his feet. We look forward to the day when we will be gathered before him on that throne, rejoicing that enemies are defeated, that the wealth of nations is rightly being brought to him and that justice and righteousness will be on full display and in full effect for all eternity right where we will be living. Thank you. Pray it and ask it and give you these thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.